Gates first ever media box I've got movie reviews discussing Orphan Black new music from Quiet Company and here's Arrested Development's Michael Sear to talk about the latest season of the show I couldn't wait to work with Mitch again and just be around Mitch again. Anytime I've ever had the opportunity to spend time with him, I you know, feel like I learned something and I feel recharged afterwards. And he's, he's had a huge impact on my life. And everyone in that cast, um, I could basically say the same for. So just being able to be with everyone again together and working with everyone is, was really a gift. You know, we did this thing where we all did like a reunion, like a year before we shot, and that was fun, but, you know, um, working with everyone was a whole different thing. It's a real pleasure. It's Monday, June 3rd, 2013, and welcome to the Gate's brand new podcast, Media Box. That clip was Canadian actor and writer Michael Cera, who was recently in Toronto to talk about Arrested Development, which just debuted its fourth season on Netflix. That fourth season comes seven years after the show wrapped season three. The rebirth of Arrested Development on Netflix is not surprising, but it is interesting, and it begs the question what will come next for Netflix in this kind of unique distribution that finally starts to address the fact that people want to consume entertainment on their own schedules. Before we talk about Netflix, though, I want to talk about MediaVox and what it's all about. My name is Andrew Powell, and I'm the editor and owner of The Gate, which celebrates its 13th anniversary this year. This podcast is kind of an opportunity for me to offer a bit more content and perspective from all the entertainment that The Gate covers, including a chance to chat with some of my friends in the industry and uh, a few stars and, and celebrities here and there as well. It means uh, bringing in actors and other people to be able to talk with you guys and maybe answer your questions in a new format. First up, I'm going to give you a little bit more of that interview with Michael Sierra. Here he is talking about writing for Arrested Development. The first day I went in, we were working on George Michael's episode, actually. and But I sort of got, didn't feel like I was thinking of it in terms of performing it. It was sort of just... I mean, basically, when you're in there, you're kind of all performing it together, just making jokes and trying to make each other laugh. So you get into that rhythm really quickly, being in there with those guys. What was it like filming this season compared to before? I mean, what, what, it must have felt very different, obviously, writing as well, yeah. but what was the mood? What was the... Um, I, I was so strange. It was, for me, it was really hard to process. And um, it's just so uncanny, you know, like being in the room with everyone. We're, we were all working on a scene together and watching people find their characters again. It was so much to process and uh, so surreal um, and also you know I'm at a different point in my life now than I was when we wrapped I was 17 when we wrapped and I'm 24 and um, that goes for everyone everyone's you know at a very different point in their life in a very different situation and so you're trying to deal with all that while <laughs> <laughs> finding this tone again, and it was a lot. It was, it was great. Yeah, strange. From what I could tell, uh, it seemed like there was total creative freedom for Mitch and support for Netflix. And um, I'm pretty sure they said yes to everything he needed in terms of budget and in terms of time. They were just completely supportive and 
you know, it was very different from doing the show the first time because this was almost like doing a movie. Because when you're doing the series, you know, you'd have to do, you'd spend five days doing an episode. And then they would have to edit it and then it would go on TV. You know, but this was more like shooting a movie because you just had to amass all this material over five months and then he would go and edit it. So it could kind of get out of control because <laughs> you don't have to like actually be done with an episode. You can keep adding to it and the thing was constantly evolving and you know, shape shifting. So that was a great thing and it, it came with its own set of challenges. Still on the topic of television, I want to talk a little bit about Orphan Black, which just aired its finale to its first season this past Saturday. Orphan Black is a co-production between BBC America and Space here in Canada, and uh, it was filmed right here in Toronto, and, you know, I can't talk enough about how amazing this series is. Um, right off the bat, it's been an incredible ride in terms of well-scripted drama and everything else. Even though it is a sci-fi series, I think it stands on its own as a drama. Aside from everything else about the series, though, the thing that really stands out about Orphan Black is Tatiana Maslany, who stars in the series as, uh, I think to date she's been five or perhaps six different characters, and often she's actually playing scenes against herself. So the unbelievable thing is that it actually looks like she could get a nomination for an Emmy, but there's a real bent in, in the Emmys against genre shows, and Orphan Black is most definitely a genre show. And what everyone is kind of watching for now is if she ends up getting a nomination, it's actually going to be quite a big deal, because up, up until now, really, genre shows haven't received nominations. But I don't think a better case could be made for a nomination than Tatiana Maslany. She's just phenomenal in this show, and she deserves the nomination, if not the win, uh, which is not something I'd, I'd always say. It's definitely not the case normally. So watch for it. It will most definitely be in reruns on uh, Space and BBC America, I'm sure, and it'll be out on uh, DVD Blu-ray probably later this year. Here's what Maslany had to say about playing the many faces of Orphan Black. Watch the whole interview with the link on our podcast page. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I don't know, I guess as an actor, like, for me, it's a dream. You know, it's, uh, it's un unlike any kind of challenge I've ever had, you know. It's, uh, you know, different dialects, it's different physicalities, it's, you know, different socioeconomic kind of um, s statuses as well, so it's kind of... It's a really interesting, uh, like, character study for me. It's a dream. You know, I get to kind of uh, break down all these different women and who have complete different upbringings, different lives, but there's something kind of uh, that ties them all together. You know, yeah. obviously they all look exactly the same. So uh, physically I can work with, you know, certain things, but, but it's like, it's more about, for me, it's more about their worldview, what makes them different, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where, where they come from makes them so different, where, how much money they have, if they have a family to protect, that kind of stuff. So it's, hmm. yeah, it's really, it's really fun. Before we talk about new releases on Blu-ray and DVD, I want to chat a little bit about After Earth, which just opened on Friday in theaters and stars Will Smith and his son Jaden Smith. Directed by Mr. Twist, better known as M. Night Shy Shyamalan, the film is another dud from the strange filmmaker who also made the disasters The Last Airbender and The Happening. 
Worse, though, it's a dud for both of the Smiths, and does neither of them any favors in a story about humans returning to Earth a long time after it was quarantined. My big problem with the film is basically that it's a family project. And while I know families, of course, want to work together, it's not usually a great idea in terms of filmmaking. Uh, the, the movie plays out like a video game, basically, and that's not exactly something you really necessarily want to watch. It also rests entirely on Jaden, and while that is interesting at times, and Jaden is up to the task at points, it's just not enough to carry the entire story. And hopefully this might spell the end of, uh, you know, the father and son team working together until both of them are actually ready for a good project. Otherwise, I've got three new releases to talk about this week. The first one is actually Identity Thief, starring Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy. Um, unfortunately, this is not, not a great movie. Uh, it is funny, it has its moments, but uh, hilarious may not be the right word to define it. Uh, basically, Jason Bateman plays a guy who gets his identity taken from him by a woman since his name is Sandy. And uh, she basically... Uh, takes him for a ride, and then he has to go try and find her to bring her back so that he can get his job back. Um, it's, uh, it's funny at moments. It has its times, but the biggest problem is it's, uh, it's maybe even a little too serious at times, if anything. Uh, and when there are laughs, they're just really not big enough to make up for the differences. Uh, the second film, which also came, came out this week uh, on Tuesday, is Bruce Willis' A Good Day to Die Hard. Uh, again, not a great movie to talk about, really. Uh, in terms of John McClane, this is probably his worst outing. Um, the problem is not Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is fine in this movie. Uh, and even Jay Courtney, who plays his son Jack, is, is pretty good. The problem is that the story just seems ridiculous. And, it you know, compared to the other films, which, you know, were a lot of fun, but they also seem kind of rooted in cool action... Uh, I don't know, the action almost just goes too far in this one. It also just does not play out in any way that most people want to see. Uh, but the other good film that I am going to talk about is Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra. Uh, this is its 50th anniversary. also stars Richard Burton and Rex Harrison. Um, you know, to be honest, the film overall is not great. It's two discs, so it's a really long movie, to be honest with you. But at the same time, it's, it's one of the last great epics. Uh, there are very few films like this that have ever been made. The visuals are astounding even now. Uh, on Blu-ray, the sound and the, the visuals look wonderful. Uh, and the acting is, is top-notch. I mean, Rex Harrison is just brilliant in this film. Um, in terms of why to watch it, it, you know, it is the visuals. The story is good, but it gets muddled. It's it's long. It's longer than it needs to be. The film also is a miracle that ever got made, considering the things that happened, the disasters that happened when they tried to make it. Um, but it is well worth checking out. It was actually an official selection of Cannes Film Festival back in the day. Um, pick it up. If nothing else, it's a great gift for your parents. But if you're a fan of classic films, it is a must-see at some point in your life, and on Blu-ray, it really is awesome. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. You dare ask the proconsul of Rome? I asked it of Julius Caesar. I demand it of you.
lastly, this week, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Media Box. Uh, you know, this will improve as we get along. It's uh, really uh, been a while since I've been podcasting, and uh, I hope you'll stick with us. Otherwise, I want to leave you with a new song to listen to. The band is called Quiet Company from Austin, Texas, and NPR named them as one of their bands to watch in 2012. This song is off their new album, A Dead Man on My Back, and they'll be playing North Northeast here in Toronto. You can catch them on June 11th at the Horseshoe, the 13th at the Ridley and Grossman's Tavern, and the 15th on at Rancho Relaxo. Uh, their website is quietcompanymusic.com. Here now is the emasculated man in the city that swallowed him. to believe that cause if it ain't true then let